Hello, I'm Donald Robertson, and this is Stoicism, Philosophy as a Way of Life, the podcast. Today's guest is Alexandra Hudson, writer, popular speaker, and the founder of Civic Renaissance, a publication and intellectual community dedicated to beauty, goodness, and truth. And she's also the author of The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves, a forthcoming book from St. Martin's. Lexi, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm well. Thanks for having me, Donald. I'm in Montreal right now. Do you want to say where you are? I am currently in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. It's a dreary and rainy day here. I hope I hope you have better weather where you are, Donald. I love Montreal. It'd be snowing a lot. I, we got a kind of storm warning, but it turned out not you know, like yesterday, but it turned out not to be quite as quite as bad as we Good. thought. <laughs> Good. So I'm safely indoors though. Um now, first thing I wanted to mention is your newsletter, uh, Civic Renaissance, which is about classical wisdom and civility. Do you want to begin by just saying, uh, uh, what's that all about? And how did you become interested in that area? Yes, thanks, Donald. So I started Civic Renaissance three years ago now. Um, it was kind of part and parcel with my writing journey. A little bit about my story is um, I love ideas. I was raised in an intellectually omnivorous home. My mom and dad cultivated the curiosity of my brothers and I at every turn. And we they really modeled for us that learning and a life of the mind and curiosity was a way of life. It wasn't just something that happened in the classroom. Education wasn't just something that happened in the classroom. And I, I took that just love of learning uh, to the classroom and to um, my vocations, to my workplace. I, I ended up taking a job at the United States Department of Education, um, where I, I worked for um, a year. And I was incredibly disillusioned to realize that the U.S. Department of Education, the single largest institution um, uh, dedicated yeah. to student instruction, in the history of mankind, didn't really care all that much about education, at least not how I had been educated and thought about education. And, the Department uh, of Education doesn't care about education. <laughs> ironic, <laughs> ironic, I know. And it was also a very divided time, a very hyper, a time of hyper-partisanship during my time in, in government in Washington. Mm-hmm. And I left just so soulishly exhausted and depleted and burnt out. And um, I knew I didn't I knew I wasn't being a part of, this, of the solution in government. And I started I, th- I thought to myself, you know, how can I, what can I do? How can I make the world a little bit more beautiful and, and better? And um, after I left government, I threw myself into the ideas, uh, and the thinkers and the books that had nourished me and formed me throughout my life, you know, from mm-hmm. from scripture to to Plato and, um, and and other philosophers across history, and I, I started thinking about this question: you know, what is the stuff of humanity? What does it mean to be human? And what is the bare minimum of respect that we are owed and owe to others by virtue of our humanity? And what does that look like in practice? And so, civic renaissance was very much part of um, me writing writing my book, The Soul of Civility, that I think we'll talk about shortly. And it gave me a platform to think out loud and question out loud about this these questions related to the stuff of humanity humanity, the stuff of human community, and the stuff of doing life together across deep difference, which is not a new problem. We think we're in a very divided and fractured moment now, but it's always been hard to do life together with, with people that are different from you. It's not natural to us. <laughs> and so um, that, that that's how that was the, I, I wanted to create a little corner of the internet, a little corner of the world dedicated to beauty, to goodness and truth, and elevating our public life and public discourse through the wisdom of, of history, through the ideas and thinkers that uh, had so formed 
and nourished me my entire life. And I wanted to continue to learn out loud and share that with others and create, again, to create this space dedicated to, to these, um, to these ideas. So when you started writing, like, where did you begin? Were there particular authors or periods in history that you, that kicked the whole thing off when you began writing your, your newsletter? What were the first um, areas that you were drawn to? Um, the, the, the thinkers in, in life that I was drawn to definitely starts with Plato. And then I, I really uh, was formed by thinkers of the Italian Renaissance. And I c- kind of came to learn about antiquity through the le- lens of the Renaissance thinkers. And of course, um, Renaissance uh, is, is rebirth. It was this era of rebirth and rediscovery of classical antiquity that happened during from between the 1300s to the 1500s and in, in starting in Italy, but also other parts of Europe. And so it's kind of interesting that though I, I knew, um, you know, Plato and Aristotle, I didn't have the broader uh, cultural context of the antiquity that they wrote and lived in. And I learned about that kind of in backwards order. I, I, I really dove into the Renaissance period. And then it was only after school in the last several years, actually, that I've come to um, get my classical education, like learning about ancient Greece and ancient Athens. Um, and uh, in terms of some of the thinkers that we love, that I, that I love, that I love to write about, Blaise mm-hmm. Pascal is one of them. He's kind of um, someone I, I return to time and time again in my own life when I'm kind of feeling down or I need a little pick me up I'll just pick up Pascal um and 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 read him he he was um he had kind of a, a great story. His he was a contemporary of Descartes, and of course, this is during the um, beginning of the Enlightenment. And while everyone is really interested in rationality and science and progress, these ideas that kind of define the Enlightenment—that only if we learn more, uh, we can you know make a, make a better world—Pascal was kind of skeptical of that notion of, of human progress. He was he was very very much convinced that that the human condition was defined by the greatness and the wretchedness of man. And that was always going to be the case. There was no learning your way or progressing your way out of that facet, that fact that we are defined by greatness and wretchedness. So he was skeptical of these notions of human progress, skeptical of the Enlightenment project. And he said, one of my favorite lines of Pascal's is, La cour de raison, la raison ne connaît pas. The heart has reasons that reason cannot understand. He had a really comprehensive view of, of what it meant to be human and that he was skeptical of, of, of visions of, of humanity that tried to elevate the mind um, over any other aspect of um one aspect of, of humanity over the other. And it's kind of interesting he did that because his own life didn't actually live up to it. Um, he he was this incredible genius. He he invented the first vacuum, Donald. He invented the omnibus really? system in Paris. Yes. Wow. He, there's a there's a, 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 a metric of volume called the Pascal named yeah. after him. He invented the first calculator and the first computer. Like he was just this absolute polymath genius, scientific mind. And then he had this radical conversion experience where he chose to abandon all of his scientific pursuits and he locked himself in a room and lived this yeah. very extreme lifestyle for the rest of his life where he would, if he saw friends, he would wear a belt of nails and he would jab himself with nails so he didn't enjoy himself too much. He didn't want anything to distract him from his his life, his his, his religious life, his convictions and his, his faith in God. And so it's kind of interesting that he had, I think, a really this really accurate and full view of the human condition that he wrote about in his Pensee, the book that we have of his. Yeah. Um, but he didn't actually live up to that. I, I wouldn't actually recommend his lifestyle, his really kind of a seat, <laughs> extreme lifestyle as, as the, one you're to not right, you don't, you're, you're not recommending the belt of nails. I'm strategy. not. 
Yeah, the, the, there are some interesting practices that people had in the past that um, definitely aren't relevant to us today. But Pascal, uh, I can see why you would be so excited about Pascal's work. When you started to look at the the ancient Greek authors and Roman authors, uh, you said that you were familiar with uh, Plato and Aristotle to some extent. Were there other ancient thinkers that you started to become more interested in over time? Yes, absolutely. Like one, one several from especially the Roman era that. Um, I've, I've loved learning about in my post, uh, after formal schooling, uh, one is is Cicero and of course Cicero, as we know, is someone who is incredibly influenced by, um, by the Greeks, by Plato and Aristotle in particular. And one thing I love about Cicero's life, uh, well, several things, I guess he, 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 he was someone who loved the study of wisdom, loved the study of philosophy, yet he he made a, a real practice of trying to apply those things to the public realm, to, to the public life, and, and, and to, to further the public good. It wasn't just ideas in in the ivory tower and in a vacuum. He, he, want, he wanted to take the ideas of the past and apply them to the, the needs of the present. And that's actually just a tiny footnote, is, is, is very much... <clears throat> The ethos that civic renaissance, the title, pays homage to this this second wave of of, of Renaissance humanisms during the Italian Renaissance mm-hmm. that wanted to revive, to do what do what Cicero did, revive the uh, ideas of antiquity, the best of antiquity, and apply and apply them to the public square and the needs of the present, and to help improve people's lives. So I love that that that, that Cicero did that, and also you probably know this, Donald, um, but Cicero is the whole reason why we have Plato and Aristotle today because he was he was a real scholar. He literally translated, he literally translated Plato and Aristotle to his fellow Romans, but he also culturally translated their ideas too. And he was a popularizer. I don't think yeah. he really see himself as an original thinker. He just pilfered in the best of the Greeks. And, yeah. and, but there, but there is originality in taking an old idea and making it relevant to the needs of yeah. the So I appreciate his art and craft in that regard as well. We should explain that Cicero wrote in Latin, um, whereas the traditional language of philosophy even for centuries after that was greek um and so there were only a handful of authors that translated greek philosophical ideas into latin whereby they could reach a wider audience and cicero is one of the most important yes. ones it's also you know a, a, an extremely important uh, prominent statesman in the roman republic and one of the greatest orators in yeah. history so we're very lucky to have many of his writings survive because they contain a lot of information about earlier philosophies, including he's one of our best sources for Stoicism, of course, as well, Mm -hmm. Um, although he wasn't himself a, a Stoic. Right. And, and, you know, spinning off from Cicero just a little bit, there is um, uh, Plutarch. Plutarch was a famous yeah. biographer, a moralist, moral, uh, moralizing biographer. He, he loved the study of history and he was a rigorous historical scholar. Like he went to the original sources, he translated from the original language, he, he, he cared about the facts. But he knew that the facts alone weren't enough to... Um, to really make history come alive, but also to unleash the power of history to help us live our lives better. He, he, he wrote about history with an eye to actually, again, making our lives better. And so he famously, in his uh, parallel lives, he would take a famous Greek and, and put, put their life in dialogue with another famous comparable 
Roman. So for example, he writes a biography of Cicero, as you noted, famous Roman statesman and orator, and puts the life of Cicero in dialogue with the Greek orator uh, Demosthenes, who is the best you know, rhetorician of his day. Yeah. And he, he didn't just make straight comparisons. He said, you know, um, Cicero was good at this, so we, we, we can learn from him. And, and Demosthenes had, had good character, and he was always honest, so we can learn from him there. Um, Cicero was prideful, and he suffered consequences in his life because he was prideful. Look at this example, and therefore we should learn not to be prideful. So it's like we're able to, I think he, Plutarch is a, is a great model, an exemplar, and someone I look to um, when I do my writing on history and philosophy because, again, he took ideas and he took storytelling and married them to th- those two um, things together in an incredibly powerful way. There's a reason that we still read Plutarch today. It's fun. It's interesting. And, um, and again, it, all, yeah. the, all to the end of helping us live richer and better lives. Good writing lasts throughout the ages. Yeah. We, we have yeah. a tiny, something that might be worth mentioning uh, to listeners is, you know, we have a tiny fraction of the texts that originally existed in antiquity that still survive today, like 1% or something like that. And one of the reasons that texts survive, one reason among many is the quality of the writing. So Cicero Mm. and Plutarch are phenomenal writers. And that's partly what's allowed their writing to survive all the way down to the present day. Cicero, one of the finest orators, Plutarch, one of the pioneers of biography. Plutarch was also an academic philosopher and a priest Mm -hmm. Uh, of Apollo um, at Delphi. So, you know, these are real polymaths as well. Um, Renaissance type figures, like, you know, in a sense, and I think I, I just, I think I think it's, that's a great point, Donald. And I, it just reminded me that that's another really important facet to civic renaissance, like that we know this notion of the renaissance man, the well-rounded human, the person that seemingly effortlessly excels in all different realms of life, like the polymath, like Pascal, we've been talking about, and these other great, great figures throughout history. And I think that we've sort of lost sight of that vision of education, that that vision of personhood that uh, we, we, we live in an era that likes specialists they we, you know we we, we we like people to to know one thing really well and and that's what they're known for but um, you know, this goes back to the ancient Greeks and Romans the notion of paideia the notion of um, uh, of education as culture and this opportunity to cultivate the fullness of our humanity uh, in all aspects of who we are mind body and spirit and knowledge of geometry math philosophy rhetoric all these different things so that we could bring forth the best version of ourselves um, to serve the public good, to serve our communities, to serve our cities, to serve serve our families. This notion, that vision of education, um, as you know, Donald, I found expression in the Roman context uh, in the phrase humanitas, which was also rendered love of humanity. And this uh, ties back to my book on on civility that that's, and and my vision of education, that that's what education is. does it, it cultivates us an affection for our our fellow man our fellow persons that isn't always natural but that can curb us, curb our tendency or temptation to to be ungracious or cruel or unkind to, to people that we don't like or people who are are different from us so it's all connected donald as you know the more well, that, you learn the more that you see the interconnectedness of all these ideas that reminds me of your book um which i wanted to ask a little bit about as well we mentioned it earlier the soul of civility it's called and the subtitle is timeless principles to heal society and ourselves Uh, what do you think lexi is the main message of your book 
the main message of my book is that um, there's a difference between civility and politeness. So civility is a a disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others and the world, um, seeing people as our equal, our moral equals and our human beings just like us, worthy of of basic respect and decency. Politeness, by contrast, is a technique. It's etiquette. It's manners. uh, It's the external manifestation of, 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 of rituals and social norms. And that sometimes being truly respectful of someone, being truly civil, requires contravening the the norms of propriety and and politeness. (laughs) And that's kind of counterintuitive. So being civil sometimes requires being impolite. So examples I love to point to are um, telling a truth to someone when you think that they're wrong. Politeness requires sort of papering over, polishing difference, um, where civility gives us the the tools to grapple difference and grapple with difference and confront it head on. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Donald, the um, etymology of these two words supports this distinction that is so central to my book. The Latin root of the word politeness mm-hmm. is polier, which means to smooth or to polish. And that's what civility does. It gets to the, it, it focuses and stays at the surface level and it, mm-hmm. and it polishes over difference, papers over difference. Whereas civility, the, the Latin root is kivitas, which is related to citizenship and city. Um, and, and that's what civility is. It's, it's the disposition of the heart and the skill set um, and the habits befitting be, be a citizen in the city. And that, again, requires robust debate. It requires truth telling. Um, often you'll hear in etiquette books or from etiquette experts, you know, don't talk about politics and religion at the dinner table. But those are precisely yeah. some of the most important things in human life. And if we never talk about them, we're not going to have authentic, true and beautiful That's human a great life. That's a democracy. Yes. That's a great example. So how can we be civil if we avoid ever talking about politics? You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's obviously a crazy idea. Like, because then we, we, you know, we're never, if we'd never engage with politics, if we avoid it completely, we're never going to develop our own understanding. Like, you know, society is never going to be able to develop a, a discourse about it that progresses. Like, yes. the most uncivil thing we could do would be to completely avoid talking about politics. That's an excellent Excellent question and a, and a very astute observation you've made, Donald. I, I think that we have actually overdone politics. We've allowed politics to consume too much of our everyday, our our emotional and mental energy, and our just overall consciousness. And this is actually the final chapter of my book. It's on forgiveness and misplaced meaning is the title of my last chapter. And I argue that we've We've misplaced our identity and our meaning, our ultimate meaning in politics as these traditional touchstones of meaning and um, like like church, like family, like community and civil society. These things have been well documented. They're they're on on the decline. And and while these traditional touchstones of meaning have rescinded in recent decades, more and more often we found our we've misplaced our meaning and found our identity, the core aspect of who we are in our political affiliation and our political Uh leaders. And, And that is why. It's so difficult to have reasoned, robust debate these days because any form of disagreement is seen as a very a, an assault on our very yeah. existence. 
core aspect of who we are. And so to your point about how we can, you know, how do we how do we be civil and not talk about politics? That's actually exactly what I say to do. I say we need to make politics matter less. Like politics is important, but we need to relegate it to its proper proportion in our lives, not let it be all consuming and all dominating. And we need to recover things in our lives that give us joy, that nourish our souls on a deep level. We need to recover friendship, for example, intellectual curiosity, for example. We need to recover beauty and encounter the sublime in nature and um, and, and just the, the, the world around us, all of those things. So those are just three examples of many um, where we can re- fill the well metaphorically. We're all running on empty to borrow the colloquialism. Like we're just, we're just exhausted and depleted and overextended all the time. And we need to take a pause from, um, from, from the things that exhaust us, which is, you know, political debate, fill our well so that we can come and bring our, the better and best version of ourselves to public life instead of just having the same debates over and over, the same, the same, you know, talking points, the same dialogue where we are, um, that, that shed far more heat than light, as, as I'm sure you're, you're aware, Donald. So that's why I love um, everything you do, Donald, and, and the community that you're, you're forging. Um, it's so important because uh, what you do at, as uh, philosophy at, at philosophy as a way of life, because you're giving people um, an opportunity to encounter the true, the good, and the beautiful things of substance that can actually nourish us on a on a deeper level, um, and again help us recover things in our life that are not just the divisive nature of politics in our world today. I think you're right that there is a thirst among many people to rediscover classics <laughs> because it, it gives them access to something that they're just not really getting from it's weird we're inundated with entertainment um i I think it basically you know the internet social media even the news has become a form of entertainment yeah i think to many people like we're we're choking like on this uh on this entertainment that's being kind of foisted on us constantly through the internet so we didn't have it a few generations ago anything like this but there's an emptiness to all um, I mean, one of the weird things is we our main focus is on philosophy. People talk a lot about philosophy and self-help. The internet's full of self-help information, but it tends to avoid certain questions. One of them is the ancients thought that one of the key questions was what's the fundamental goal of life? Like, what's the point of everything? That's obviously one of the yes. most fundamental questions, but hardly anyone ever ask that most people you know have no experience of discussing these kind of fundamental questions it it's all heat and no light yeah. like there's a lack of substance yeah. to a lot of the self-improvement or the what passes for philosophical discourse that i think we we encounter online in a way it's a distraction from the real questions like the deeper questions that we find being openly discussed in the classics i wanted to ask you as well about the book um just to like to dig a little bit deeper into the the content are there particular authors like you mentioned is for example is pascal in there like who else do you do you talk about in the book i mean socrates is all throughout my book uh when when um He's he's a paragon of civil discourse. He's a paragon of truth telling, but but again, respecting others and and the the ultimate pursuit of truth was was the end was the end goal for him. He didn't engage in manipulative tactics and and ad hominem attacks like the sophists did of his day. He's a um, and and anyway, he when I use Socrates as an example. Um, of of someone he he knew that the end goal of civil discourse was 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 um trying to better our opponent you know mm-hmm. he 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 realized that um 
virtue is the health of the soul. And that if, if, why would anyone, you know, consciously want to be sick? If someone was engaging in incivility and, and, and engaging in, in lying and, and, and vicious behavior, you know, yeah. from Socrates' perspective, he said, you know, why would anyone do that on purpose? Like my, my, my role, Socrates said, is to guide them towards health, health of the soul. Like, like mm-hmm. incivility, he would say, is its own punishment because it's, 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 it's unhealth, yeah. it's sickness of the soul. Whereas Absolutely. civility is, is its own reward because it's treating others with dignity and respect. And as we yeah. ennoble others, we ennoble ourselves. When we yeah. disrespect and degrade others, we hurt ourselves. So, so you know, it's a common question I get is like, how can we be civil in an uncivil world when there's viciousness, people who are willing to break the rules and yeah. do anything to get ahead? I, I like to invoke Socrates there. The people that, that break the rules to get ahead, Socrates would say, but what are they actually winning? If they're if they're if they're soul if they're soulishly sick, that's its own that's its own punishment. You know, it's easy to um, uh, they're not really getting getting away with anything in the long term term, and especially not in light of eternity. Yeah, yeah, I think there's actually that's a really good description of Socrates, by the way, and I think also, guess um, from a technical point of view, it seems to me that in Socrates and in a number of ancient authors, we find them employing strategies, techniques that are designed to counter rhetoric. And one of them is like, why many people will know, um, we are victims of rhetoric today. The social media and the news are are full of manipulative persuasion strategies. And one of the most common ones that we find in political bickering is the ad hominem attack or the ad hominem fallacy. Exactly. So that's when you attack someone's character and it is a way of kind of undermining the credibility of the things that they've said. Yes. And that that happens all the time on the internet. And I, I think it's interesting to notice that Socrates and other ancient authors, Seneca does this a lot, for example, I think Cicero probably does it as well, do something that's directly opposed to that. They actually tend to complement the character of people that they're disagreeing with. So, for example, Seneca praises Epicurus. He says he thinks of him as a wise and virtuous person. And then he proceeds to dissect the fundamental claims of his philosophy. And that prevents people from saying, you just don't like Epicurus, you know, like, which is what would normally happen today. So he's emphasizing, I don't, I don't have a problem with Epicurus. Like, he seems like a nice guy. Like, but I totally disagree with some of the things that he said. So it allows him to engage in quite fundamental criticism without it coming across like an ad hominem attack. And I find that interesting. I wonder, you know, that's we don't see people making those kind of efforts today in order to, you know, I think we need to try harder uh, and try more actively, more intelligently to avoid employing ad hominem attacks and using other mm-hmm. rhetorical strategies that spoil uh, political discourse. I think that's a great point, Donald. And it reminds me of this broader uh, idea that, that we've been talking about a little bit throughout our conversation, which is that there there is this this hunger, this thirst for, for ancient wisdom, um, because we want to be, we want we feel we. I think we intuitively feel connected to the past. We, and we there's so much there's so much practical wisdom um, to be derived from it. Um, and and I, I refer to it call I, I refer to this as the great conversation, this iterative dialogue about foundational questions of the human experience, such as who are we, 
why are we here? What is the best way to live? That that thoughtful people across history and culture. Yes, the Greeks and the Romans, but also people of other cultures, people in Africa and Egypt and, and Persia. They thought about these questions too. And they reflected on them. They meditated on them. They offered answers to them. They disagreed with one another on their answers. Um, and that we are invited today to continue that, that conversation. We can benefit from their answers, the thoughtfulness that they put into answering these really difficult questions. We can build on them. We can adapt them to our own comfort level, our own, you know, our own needs. Um, but ultimately, that is what, um, that's what true education is, Donald. It's, it's, it's grappling with having the chance to answer for ourselves these questions, who are we? Why are we here? What is the best way to live? And other questions of that nature. Uh, and we're people are hungry for that. We're, we're, I think we're a society that denies that we need sort of metaphysical, we have any sort of metaphysical needs. And yet, even if we deny them, they're still there. And, and philosophy is one important answer to those metaphysical needs that we all have, we all share as human beings. Why else, Lexi, do you, why else do you think uh, classics are still important today? They're they're important for for that reason that um, you know they're, they're, they they help us gain that true education that often we can come away from um, our formal schooling having never asked those questions we can it's possible that. Um, we have a PhD, you know, we've gone through all of our edu- all of our years of schooling and we haven't grappled with the meaning of life or the, or the stuff of the life well lived. And um, that's one reason I'm so optimistic about the, the possibility of, of the classics and lifelong learning that even if we weren't privileged uh, enough to encounter those conversations, encounter uh, the thinkers from, from antiquity that, that uh, invited us into that dialogue, it's not too late to start right now. That's why um, I think the, the community you're cultivating is so important, Donald. That's what I try to do with my with my community, showing people the beauty and the goodness on offer to us right now. If we sit down and pick up a platonic dialogue, or if we sit down with Blaise Pascal for a few yeah. minutes, that, that that it's not too late to start. And and um and and that one one um you know beautiful work of philosophy leads to the next, and it's just this iterative um, process, like letting 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 curiosity be your guide, letting your interests be your guide. That's that's where we're going to learn the most, and enjoy the most, and, re- and remember the most as well. It's, it's funny how um, anti, you know, not anti science, but like so much some of the of the common practices in our classrooms today are not conducive to the best way to learn and actually remember <laughs> and live actually as well. Uh, that we remember most when we're actually interested in what we're doing, not when we're just like forced to memorize something for a grade. Um, so that, that's why I'm grateful to have you as a partner in this journey, just to create content and resources for people, um, Donald, that are that, 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 that do hunger for these things that want to keep learning, want to keep growing and nurturing their heart, soul and mind with these ideas. Because um, I think that's, that's the stuff of being human. It's a lifelong journey. Um, asking these questions. I think one of the other things there, I'm going to say something controversial now. I think but, often, I think often when I'm reading the classics, I think many classical authors, probably the majority that have survived today, we've got a very curated, very kind of small selection, like I mentioned earlier. It's the creme de la creme in a sense that largely that survives. But often uh, when we're reading classics, it feels to me that the quality of two things, the quality of the reasoning and the quality of the language, the writing, is significantly better than the quality of reasoning and communication or rhetoric or writing that we find in much modern 
philosophical or self-improvement or psychology literature. Maybe not all of it, but a, a mm. lot of it. What's typical or representative of the books, the modern books that people read, I think is often inferior in quality in certain mm. regards to many of the classics. Mm. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting to ponder the reason for that. But one might be that the majority of classical authors had uh, a, a very different education. They were more educated in, in philosophy and rhetoric. Uh, they knew how to formulate arguments and how to avoid fallacies far better than, than many modern authors do. And I think that, to your to your point, Donald, um, being literate was a far more rare occurrence in antiquity especially. We have way higher rates of literacy today. So, so not only yeah. were there fewer people writing and fewer people reading, um, you know, it was it was it was expensive and and and, and time time consuming to you know write by hand you know letters and and in your books they didn't have the printing press obviously in antiquity whereas today writing is relatively costless you know writing a tweet that costs you know that in five seconds and that and and in addition I think the incentives are are very different it's like you want to put out quality in hopes that something goes viral and you get a little bit internet famous for five minutes then hope that you know you continue to be internet famous until maybe you're given your own television talk show or radio talk show or something like that. The incentives are all about, they're more about virality and spectacle mm-hmm. than about, and to, 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 a, to a metaphor we've been coming back to a few times, it's like, it's about, about shedding more, more heat than light because heat and anger that yeah. is um, lucrative. It's it's literally yeah. lucrative. Yeah, <laughs> like absolutely. The, the incentives are very different in our world today. So I think that's an interesting question for creators like you and I, Donald. You know, how do we make uh, a living in this world with the ideas that we care about, with the ideas that we know can help people, yeah, while not succumbing to the incentives and the, the structure of the world that is? People call it rage farming. That's exactly. how that's how the yeah. media work. Yeah. Like it's fueled by anger, ang- <laughs> fear, and anger. Like, you know, that's how a lot of social media uh, works. It's what algorithms reward because it naturally captivates our attention for a longer period of time. And that means more advertising revenue. So, like, we've created this horrific monster in a way, like, that's exploiting yes. us rhetorically. And we, the only way to protect ourselves against that, I think, is by improving the quality of our reasoning and our awareness of the ways in which we're being uh, manipulated I agree. I agree. And I think one last thing, Donald, I think it's okay to have boundaries with our media consumption and and just be really exclusive. Like, who am I listening to? Who am I letting into my mind, into my home, into my consciousness And, and, and being wary? Like, as you, like you said, as you hone your critical thinking and reasoning skills, um, having that guide, you know, who are you allowing into your life? Like which thinkers, which, which talk show hosts. (laughs) Um, I think, I think that that's, that's a really important part of it too. It's so easy to just be inundated uh, by so much. It's easy to just throw our hands up and be like, okay, well, I don't know what the truth is anymore, but we can't, we can't, we devolve that way. We can't just throw our hands up. It's important to just guard our peace, guard our consciousness, guard our minds. I think we're living in the third sophistic. Like, (laughs) There was the the first sophistic when the sophists originally appeared in in Athens. Socrates was always engaging them in dialogue and questioned their role in society. The sophists were professional orators. Um, They were also kind of self-improvement gurus in a sense as well. 
Um, that's where our word sophistication comes from. That's what the yeah. sophists hoped to teach young Athenians. And they charged huge fees. They were the rock and roll stars of their day. They were huge celebrities. They were like social media influencers today. And then the second sophistic happened in the Roman Empire um, when uh, wealthy Romans became interested in Greek culture. But I think with the internet and the, the kind of rise of social media influencers, we're living in the third sophistic. It's the same thing, in a sense, happening again that what's most attention-grabbing and therefore most manipulative gets the most rewards and starts to dominate. And I I think we're starting to see the beginning of a reaction against that with people really feeling that they're being played and wanting to turn more to ways of restoring rationality through philosophy, things like Stoicism and Socrates, and also a return to the civility that you talk about. People see that the fear and anger and bickering and trolling and flaming and all that is a dead end culturally. Like we have to figure out a way to bring back reason and civility to our our discourse. Yeah, I agree. And uh, one other etymological link to the the sophist is the word professor today. That's why one of my teachers in college, he would never let anyone call him a professor because he's like, he was more more Socratic. He was definitely a Platonist. He's like, no, don't you dare call me a professor. (laughs) I know what I don't know. (laughs) That reminds me of another question I wanted to ask you. you know, because both of us are involved in popularizing the classics. What, how, what if somebody said to you, Lexi, let me play devil's advocate for a second, right? So their, their words, not mine. What if someone said to you, Lexi, you can't possibly appreciate the classics without having a classics or a, a degree or a philosophy degree? You know, how can people hope to really get into the classics if they don't have a university education in these subjects? I mean, do you feel that classics can be made accessible outside the ivory towers of academia? Absolutely, I do. And I think the best um, the best thinkers throughout history have have known that, too, and made made a point to bring philosophy to the people. I mean, this is why Socrates practiced philosophy in the Agora, right? That the public square. He was famous for it. Yeah. People all around him. Exactly. Um, And and this, this, again, back to this notion that no education is complete without asking big questions about origin, about purpose, and about destiny. And that's the stuff that philosophy focuses on. And those are questions that Every person of all socioeconomic background, of all ethnicity or race, of all education levels deserves the opportunity to ask and answer for themselves those questions, which is why the philosophic life is for everyone. The predecessors, the sophists actually, and the philosophers that preceded Socrates mainly taught wealthy, young, male Athenians. It was quite, it was a very exclusive thing. And Socrates shattered that. He was kind of middle class anyway. He was relatively poor. He came from outside of that system. Instead of lecturing, he asked questions and he shattered this kind of exclusiveness, really. He, he mainly spent his time in the Agora, sometimes in the gymnasia and the kind of recreational grounds. But we're told that he did philosophy with Athenians, but also with foreigners. He did uh, with free men and also with slaves. He did it with the rich and with the poor. And most shockingly of all, Lexi, I think the thing that he did, one of the things that he did that kind of shook Athenian society was that Socrates did philosophy with women. Yes. 
and women weren't even allowed in the Greek uh, gymnasia, the Lyceum and the Academy. There's a story actually about two women that attended lectures by Plato and they had to disguise themselves as men to get into the grounds of the uh, the academy. But Socrates, we see speaking to a number of women. Um, and so this, he really shattered these this kind of exclusiveness that was around education. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why he's a, he's a really good exemplar of the sort of values, some of the sort of values that we could do with restoring today, opening I, up the classics to a wider audience. Absolutely. And there's a great uh, line from, a fellow named Joseph Addison, uh, he he started the Spectator in London, a famous you know um, publication of record yeah. that um, was with he 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 literally said like 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 Socrates did, we want to take philosophy down from the clouds and bring it to the people, bring it to the public square. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing his mm. very famous um, very famous line about that, but I think that's what good writers do. That's what good thinkers do. If you can't explain your ideas simply and cogently uh, in a way that you're a child or your grandmother could understand. Like, do you, can it be really, really, we said that you know them that well, I think. And, and I mean, maybe there is an argument for um, expertise and really technical, precise language that may not be accessible to the lay person in, in the law or science or things like that. But I think that there, it is a really important art form to be able to take complex ideas and to make them interesting and accessible to people. My favorite teachers, both both from across history that I continue to learn from and throughout my education, they have been incredible at doing that, not just um, uh, to, in, in introducing me, me to, to, to new subject matters, to new subject matter and, and making it interesting and fun and relevant to my life. Um, and, I, and that's what I aspire to do as well. I know you, and you do you do an excellent job of that as well, Donald. So I wanted to ask you, I guess, leading on from that about some of the other work that you've been doing more recently. Um, so you have an e-learning course called Storytelling and the Human Condition. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? And in particular, what do you believe great stories from across different cultures can actually tell us today about our lives? I love that. Thanks, Donald. So my course is, is um, it's a televisual series coming out uh, and produced in partnership with the, the teaching company or the, the great courses. <clears throat> uh, they're new. They're, they're basically like Netflix for lifelong learners, Netflix for education. And uh, their new streaming platform is called Wondram. And my course um, is called Storytelling on the Human Condition. It looks at great stories from across history and culture and looks at what they tell us about what it means to be human and what it means to live a meaningful life. And it was such a fun experience creating this course, Donald, because, you know, I was raised, born and raised in the West. And um, so, and we're all for better or for worse. And, and, and in a non-malevolent way, we're, we're captive to the education and the context that we were raised in, right? That's not, that's not a bad thing. But what was really fun about this course was, you know, I wanted it to be representative of the human condition, which meant expanding beyond um, the knowledge base that I was raised with. And so I read about Persian mythology and African mythology and just famous stories from, um, you know, uh, from across history and all these different different cultural uh, traditions to to have it be more more culturally uh, representative of, again, the, the 
the human experience and, and what, what our stories tell about us. Um, and and the, the, the course, it, it kind of tracks the, 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 the human experience in general. So the first lecture is on, or the second lecture rather, um, after the introductory lecture is on origin stories. And so I put in dialogue, um, for example, um, Hesiod's origin story with the Genesis narrative, with the Babylonian creation narrative called the Enuma Elish. And I put these different stories in dialogue to say, okay, how, how is it that the stories we tell ourselves about the way the world came to be and the way humanity came to be, how does that inform how we live our lives and, and what our purpose is and our destiny is at human beings? So that, that's really, that was really fast. So we go from the you know origin stories and then we go through um, things like uh, pride, uh, things like suffering, things like humor and adversity. I see, I see the, the, these sort of universals all the way through to death, the stories we tell ourselves about death and the afterlife, and then ultimately to human freedom. You know, what do we do with the fact that, um, as Blaise Pascal said, um, the human condition is defined by the greatness and wretchedness of, of man, which to, to your question about what stories tell us about the human condition, that's what these stories tell us, that we're capable of greatness, capable of wretchedness, and that all, at the end of the day, we are endowed with reason and autonomy, and we have the ability to choose how we, what sort of life we want to create, what sort of um, legacy we want to create, how we want to inhabit the world today is ultimately up to us. Um, and the very last lecture, Donald, I put into dialogue mm-hmm. a figure that you likely know, um, Victor Frankl and his man's mm-hmm. search for meaning. Um, of course, I'm sure many of your listeners know he was a he was a, a survivor of Auschwitz, where he lost his entire family, where he was imprisoned and they and killed, and, and um, because they were Jewish, and he reflected on, on 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 the human condition, on the meaning of life in, in these monstrous, abhorrent, unconscionably evil conditions, where where man was literally exterminating fellow man because of arbitrary lines, and and hey, how can we find meaning a lot um, in light of that? And 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 his answer was. It was freedom. It was we. They could like when we're in a, a, a desolate environment, like he was at Auschwitz. They can take our clothes. They can take our food. They can take our literal um, mobility, our, our, our freedom to move. But they can't take our freedom of mind and conscience. And that, and that, in his conception, was the difference between who survived Auschwitz and who didn't. Who who exercised their freedom? Who told themselves stories um, that, that helped them survive? You know, stories of hope on the other side of it, Stor- stories of even surviving it and not stories of despair um, and defeat. So thanks for asking about that course, Donald. I'm so excited about it. It's being released later in February and I cannot wait to share it with the world. Yeah. Sounds really interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I want to ask you, Lexi, what, what's one of your favorite stories? One of my favorite stories. So um, I have a lecture dedicated to love, uh, love and sex. And I actually put into dialogue the... Uh, lesser known but amazing love story of Peter Abelard and Heloise. Do you know, do you know that story, Donald? Does that sound familiar to you? I don't think I know that story. Uh, Abelard was one of the smartest men of the Middle Ages. He was an absolute genius, and he was second only. He he, he was only second in terms of his intellect to this young dashing woman named Eloise and and Abelard was Eloise's tutor and this was in Paris in like the 1300s mm-hmm. and um uh you know 
one of the greatest intellectual superstars of the day, tutoring a very beautiful, very smart young woman. What do you think happened? They fell in love. They carried on an affair. She got pregnant and um, he, he insisted on marrying her. And she said, no, like, I don't want to marry you. I love you too much to marry you, which is very interesting. She says, you know, in this day, Donald, um, being a, t- a teacher, being a professor was kind of tantamount to being a, a clergyman, that the, the church and the clergy were very intermingled. And so marriage was very, very frowned upon. And, and Heloise said, you know, I don't want to get in the way of your career and your your prospects as a, as a teacher by, by marrying you. So I, I just, just let me be your lover. You know, it's okay. But he insisted he loved her. He wanted to marry her. They got married. But her uncle, Fulbert, would never forgave Abelard for betraying his trust, for uh, you know having the affair behind their back. And he had assassins break into Abelard's home in the middle of the night and castrate him. Wow. Unconscionably bad. And then, the, and then very sadly, the Abelard and Eloise, um, they spent the le- rest of their lives apart. He made her go to a convent and he lived a life in, in, a, in, a, in a monastery as well. And they continued their romance. They continued their, their, lo- their love life, though, not physically, but with letters. And we still have their remarkable correspondence mm-hmm. uh, of letters today. They, they, they talk about all manner of things under the sun, um, you know, history, philosophy, faith, religion. And, and, and it's really quite incredible to your point about antiquity that we really only have the creme de la creme of antiquity. Uh, that it speaks to how revered Abelard and Eloise were that we still have their letters uh, from the middle ages today. Cause we have very little, like it's called the dark ages, not because mm-hmm. um, it was, you know, um, backward or anything, but it's because we have so little about that period of history. It's dark to us. <laughs> um, and so we have, we have their incredible correspondence. And what I love about their story is that they met first and foremost at the level of the mind. And that was the, the, the their love of learning, their love of curiosity and, and their joy and wonderment um, in the world around them. That was the foundation of their relationship. And that because they had such a strong foundation um, at their meeting of the minds that they, they were able to continue having a, a romantic relationship via letter for the rest of their life, even though their physical relationship had ended. I just, I really find that uh, I actually got, I find that really inspiring and, and really beautiful uh, and really cu- countercultural to um, what, what, what people tell us, what the world today tells us about love that, you know, we, we live in an era of just, you know, casual sex and, 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 and selfishness, you know, take what you can from people and give nothing in return. But everything about Peter Abelard and Eloise's story kind of runs contrary to that. Like Eloise was willing to take the hit to her reputation and to her, um, you know, her, to her brand, to her personal persona uh, in order because she loved, she was willing to, you know, be branded a harlot, branded a prostitute because, um, because she loved Abelard so much. And, um, and, and again, like the notion that you can have a really strong, really vibrant uh, re- relationship with someone, romantic, romantic, loving relationship with someone without a physical relationship. Like that's really countercultural to, 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 to what we hear today where, um, 
you know, we just do what we want, do what feels good without repercussions, no strings attached. And I put that story, Donald, in dialogue with uh, a story I'm sure you know, a story about love that we get from Plato's Phaedrus, where he talks about how how love is two souls coming together, that the stuff of the flesh meeting, like that's, that's, that's a peasant's version of love, that true love um, wants to better the soul of the other. And, and that's, that, that again, I think is really embodied by Abelard and Eloise, where again, it wasn't about the physicality. It was about mutual love of the good, the true and the beautiful and wanting the betterment of, of the other. So that's, that's a, uh, a story that I, that I love. And I loved, I loved learning about that and sharing it in the, in the series. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing it with us. And do you have any other projects in the horizon, Lexi? What are you, what are you working on next? Oh, I have so many books that I want to write, and it's 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 about how to prioritize. Where do I find? Uh, how do I decide what which to start on first? But in the immediate term, um, it's focusing on the 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 launch of the the course, which is coming out in February, and then the launch of the book, which is coming out in October of this year, twenty twenty three. Um, and a project I'm working on that is tied to the launch of the course on storytelling is a, a virtual summit on storytelling, and I and I want to get some really big name people and and look at storytelling through all these different valences, all these different lenses about the human experience from, you know, storytelling and history. So talking about Plutarch, storytelling and um, moral instruction, talking about Aesop and and, and the uh, fabulous tradition, the the tradition of fables that was so important to the the classical world. Um, Storytelling and polarization, you know, grounding, uh, talking about something that's, that's on a lot of our minds today. What are the stories that we tell about ourselves and our political opponents, our political people we disagree with on political issues that contribute to hyper-partisanship? And what might replacing those stories with better stories, how might that alleviate our very divided world that we find this in? So I want, I want the the, the, the ethos of the summit to channel the ethos of the course. It's not going to be just talking about the course at all, but, but to have uh, all these different experts, but some of the greatest storytellers of our day ex- uh, explore the breadth of the human experience and the human condition and, and, and help us think through what, what, what is the role of storytelling in these different venues of life and, and how can the stories we tell for better, for better, for worse, um, help us lead lives lead richer and, and, and better lives. So that'll be, I think, early March is, is the date we're aiming for, for the storytelling, um, the storytelling summit. The storytelling summit. That's excellent. Excellent. That, that seems like a good note on which to conclude today. So thanks for that, Lexi. And thank you, everyone else, for listening to Stoicism, Philosophy as a Way of Life. Be sure to share the link with your friends. I'm looking forward to the next time, but for now, it's goodbye from this episode's guest, Alexandra Hudson, and goodbye from me, Donald Robertson.